Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we close out our three-part series on Birmingham, hate in this country, and why you need to vote in 2020. Oh, so just a lighthearted episode, right, Misasha? Really light. You know, we touch on (laughs) puppies, rainbows, and hate. Like, you know. And we're just going to start with a story. And when this story came through my newsfeed, I was shocked and then I wasn't shocked. And the fact that I wasn't shocked, I think, was the sadder, scarier part about this whole thing. So let's go right into it. This happened this past week. The Upper Darby School District is in a residential suburb of Philadelphia. According to the district, the student population of its schools is increasingly diverse. So about 47% are African-American, 32% are white, about 14 to 15% are Asian Pacific Islander, 5.6% are Hispanic, and 1% identify as other. That's more diverse than the cities that either you or I live in, Sarah. But what happened on Thursday at Drexel Hill Middle School clearly indicates that being in a diverse community or even teaching in it doesn't mean you aren't spreading hate. In fact, that's far from it, apparently. The video posted on Facebook appeared to begin after the accident, which was a fender bender, a minor accident that happened between a white female teacher who'd been at that school since 2008 and a black man in the school parking lot. You can hear a man say, I guess she's done cursing and screaming. The woman looks at him as she rubs the bumper of the truck she was driving. She can be heard saying the man is probably on welfare, too. The man says not even a little bit. Six figures a year, ma'am. The teacher, who has not been publicly identified at this point, at the time of the recording, called that BS. It's because I'm young and I'm black, the reason why you would say that, the man says. That's right, because you're black, she replies as she continues to rub her car's bumper, which to me, you know, I'm like trying to visualize this and the fact that she's just standing there rubbing the bumper, too, this whole time. So weird, but whatever. Anyway, and so he repeats again, probably on welfare, he says, repeating her words. That's right, she answers, always looking to milk the system. And you see me, a white woman, so you think I got money. He says, not even a little bit. Doesn't even look like you got it, he says, not even a little bit. So as you can see, they're sort of getting into some sort of conversation. And then... She comes back with this. Go back to your welfare, to your Section 8 house, she says, referring to a federal program of low-income housing vouchers. The woman insults the man's car, and he, in response, tells her that he has a 3,200-square-foot house. She talks about how she can pay cash for his vehicle, which is not seen. He tells her several times she is, quote, mad and nervous. And then she goes nuclear. She lobs the N-word at him. There's a pause, and then he says, I'm sorry? You heard me, she says. The situation can change real quick, he says. She comes towards him and stops saying, what are you going to do about it? He tells her to stay where she is. Oh, yeah, she says. She begins to come toward him again. You bring it on. You bring it on. At some point, she turns around and heads back to her truck. At the end of the video, which cuts off abruptly after 99 seconds, the teacher calls him a freaking fag. Holy shit. Right? This episode is explicit. Sorry. (laughs) So the superintendent, sort of the head of that school, said he had met with a parent who was involved, that man, and with the teacher and her representation. He called the teacher's remarks deeply, deeply troubling. And he said, though, he couldn't say she would be fired, which was like a hard stop for me. I mean, because if that doesn't get you fired, like lobbing racial insults in a parking lot, I'm not sure if you're supposed to be representing the school and you're teaching the students. I'm not really sure what could. Right. This is on the school parking grounds. Like it's on the school grounds. Yeah. Kids could have been around for all anybody knew. Right. I mean, they probably were. We don't know because we just have that one video from CNN. But 
you know, he makes sort of the statement that says, my recommendation is that we shouldn't tolerate this in our school and in our district. I can't go into more detail than that, he said. And I know that they were calling a school board meeting about this at the time of our recording this episode. But I mean, you know, the scary part is that incident, like I said, that the feelings that I had were first shock and then like not shock at all, just sadness. Like, here we go again. Yeah. I mean, we were doing research for this episode and beyond this incident, which is horrifying. You should be horrified that someone could turn around and escalate and then, like you said, go nuclear and use the N-word, which is basically cuts off the conversation. There's nothing that a black person can say to a white person that is as effective and as insulting at all. There's just not a word. And so that situation was horrifying. It speaks to the heart of so many of our conversations here, Misasha, but like, there's a bigger question here. When you have something that doesn't go your way, you have a minor inconvenience, what comes out of your mouth? And then what is going on within a person, within this woman, within everybody who says these things, when these profoundly racist stereotypes just tumble out of your mouth? And then so if that's what's happening, as we dig deeper, how big of a role does entitlement play here? And not just entitlement, like I feel, but also the structures that are in place that we always talk about, this racist structure, racism, and the, you know, if you're going to put someone down, someone necessarily has to be up, all of those things. And so what we keep coming back to, we've looked at, you know, Birmingham part one, Birmingham part two, this hate and entitlement. And if you haven't listened to them, please, you can put this on pause and go listen to those two, because this really builds in a three-part series here pretty well. But entitlement plays a huge role. One that we can't just dismiss, one that we have to look at, especially if you're white, if you identify as white. And what's that linked to is a psychology that runs really, really deep. It's a really significant part of this country from the time of our founding, and we can't back away from it. Like, it's uncomfortable to talk about it for sure, but you have to address it in order to get past it. But for right now, what seems to happen time and time again is that we're glossing over it. We keep looking away from it. It's too uncomfortable and we don't want to look at ourselves and we don't want to look at the structure of the system. Right. That's so true. And I think that just like this Drexel Middle School incident, you know, we have even larger scale incidents that keep highlighting this central fact for us. For example, in the recent El Paso mass shooting in which a gunman killed 22 people, he claimed that the shooting was in response to the, quote, Hispanic invasion of Texas. Can you see? I mean, my head is shaking, right? <laughs> I mean, even when I was writing this and I was researching this part, I like kept coming back to like, what the fuck? I mean, I have no other reaction than just that basic reaction. But this statement didn't come out of nowhere, though. And it's not unique to him. In fact, from the moment that Donald Trump was a presidential candidate and he announced in his campaign some warnings about some Mexican immigrants, quote, bringing drugs into the country and being, quote, rapists. Latinos have been worried about how such characterizations would affect them as one of the nation's fastest growing populations. And apparently they were right because El Paso. A Pew Research Center study this year found that 58% of Hispanic adults say they've experienced discrimination or have been treated unfairly because of their race or ethnicity. So that means that of every two Hispanic adults, at least one possibly both, have experienced discrimination based solely on their race or ethnicity. Across racial and ethnic groups, about two-thirds said that it had become more common for people to express racist views since Trump became president. Researchers say victims of racism experience negative health outcomes, and we've talked a little bit about this, but 
studies have linked Trump's rise to an increase in premature births among Latinas, and others have tied it to increased anxiety and depression in the general Latinx population. So let's do a sidebar here and talk about mental health for a minute, because yes, we're talking about the Latina and Latino population, but I think it's important to note that anxiety and mental health issues are on the rise in this country overall for everyone. And so let's talk about that. Anxiety disorders are the most common. They affect about 40 million adults in the U.S., ages 18 or older, so that's almost 20% of the population. They're highly treatable, but only sort of under 40% of those suffering receive treatment. And if anxiety kind of progresses without treatment and is left unchecked, it can lead to things like depression. In general, about one out of every six adults will have depression at some time in their life. And if you go to the whole medical manual, the definition of a major depressive episode is at least two weeks of a depressed mood, loss of interest, or pleasure in almost all activities, and also five other symptoms like sleep issues on an almost daily basis, whether you're having trouble going to sleep or sleeping too much changes in your appetite and weight, or decreased energy or fatigue almost every day, difficulty concentrating, making decisions, thinking clearly, really slow speech or slow physical movements, or frighteningly, recurrent thoughts of death or suicide, a suicide attempt, or a specific plan for suicide. And keep in mind, in this country right now, suicide, I think it clocked in at like the second leading cause of death among people ages 10 to 34. We're talking about the children and the young people in this country. There's a lot of mental health challenges. So think about how that would feel for you. If you've been through anxiety, if you've been through depression, think about how that feels. It sucks. It's not your fault. And it sucks to feel that way. And then the economic impact to our country, because you might be like, not you, but like someone might be like, well, who cares? Those people are depressed. They're weaker. They can't handle it. Like we shouldn't care, but it affects the economics. It's the leading cause of disability worldwide. Depression is. And the total economic burden of depression is estimated to be $210 billion per year. Like when you take leave, it affects your job. It affects how the economy works. And like I said before, 35% adults with depression receive no treatment at all. And if you have it for a long time, you are at increased risk of heart attack, heart disease, digestive issues, your immune system falls apart. All sorts of things are happening. It's not healthy. And it doesn't lead to a healthy society, your ability to connect or contribute in a good way. So then getting back to what you say about Hispanic Americans and the stress and anxiety caused by the current political climate now, and this is, I just got stats from the American Psychiatric Association, U.S. born Hispanics report higher rates for most psychiatric disorders than Hispanic immigrants. People who were raised in this culture, like the stuff you were saying, they feel that attack in this country. Approximately only one in 10 Hispanics with a mental disorder use mental health services from a healthcare provider. And then only one in 20 get services from a specialist in mental health. Whether it's the stigma or something, they're not, people are not getting, it's a worse statistics than the overall country. Hispanics are more likely to report communication with their health provider. You know, people who have are bilingual patients, they're evaluated differently when they're interviewed in English versus interviewed in Spanish. And when you're treated in Spanish, Hispanics are more frequently under-treated. And then, you know, you and I've talked a lot about the economics of, you know, generational wealth and that sort of stuff. Over 20% of Hispanics are uninsured compared with 7.5% of white non-Hispanic Americans. And the American Psychiatric Association said insurance coverage for Hispanics is likely to be a function of ethnicity, immigration status, and citizenship status. So we're not offering human, compassionate services to people who need it who are here in our country. 
Right. Those stats, especially when related to Hispanic Americans or people who are born in this country who are Americans or naturalized citizens, too, which is super important to remember, especially because a lot of the rhetoric that we hear are targeted at immigrants and people coming across the border when, in fact, a lot of the people that are hearing the rhetoric are don't fall in that category because they are here, are citizens, are legal. Right. But it goes back to that episode where we talked about the mass deportations in the early 1900s. It's easy to identify immigrants who look a certain way. Yep. And so it doesn't matter whether you know factually their story. A lot of times when you're spewing hate, you're generalizing. It doesn't matter that so-and-so did this wonderful deed. You're just looking at their skin and judging them and hating them. Totally. And I think, you know, there is a great example of this when there was a rally that Trump had held when he asked the audience how they would stop migrants. And he said, how do you stop these people? And someone yelled back, shoot them. And a video of the rally showed him smirking, which is like, if I were to describe this in emojis, it would be like the palm face emoji, then it would be like a dumpster, and then it would be like fire, because literally, this is a dumpster fire. He didn't condemn that then. And that's something that should be so easy for a president to do to say that you shouldn't shoot human beings on sight, said the Texas State Director for America's Voice, Mr. Carrillo. And he had immigrated to the United States from Mexico with his parents when he was five years old. He notes, and I thought this was like heartbreaking, that I don't think I felt less welcome as an immigrant to this country than I have in the last three years. And he's now a naturalized U.S. citizen. His wife is one of the undocumented dreamers who was brought to the United States as children. And he says he lives in constant fear of her being detained or deported. And that in his advocacy work, he's dealing with so many undocumented immigrants who are feeling the same thing. And he notes, I think the climate for Latinos right now is very dangerous. And I think it really starts at the top with the president's rhetoric. I'm very well aware that racism against Latinos didn't start with Donald Trump. But when the president of the United States not only enables prejudice, but encourages it, it makes for a a dangerous environment. I mean, yeah. And as a a different story, Elizabeth Vaquera is an associate professor of sociology and public policy and public administration at George Washington University. And she studies the well-being of vulnerable groups and has studied the impact that Trump's time in office has had on Latinos. She and her colleagues surveyed 213 Latino parents of adolescents in the suburbs of a large mid-Atlantic city a couple years ago in 2017. They asked the parents about their responses to immigration news and actions since Trump became president. And the survey found that the parents are worried and they're changing their behavior. They surveyed undocumented people, U.S. citizens, those in the U.S. under temporary protected status. So the whole round of people, but regardless of their immigration status, all of the participants experienced at least some heightened anxiety. And what she said was the language that criminalizes and makes Latinos out to be evil is affecting our own citizens here in the United States. It's going to have both short and long term consequences that we are starting to see in the Latino population. And Ian Haney Lopez, who's the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Public Law at Berkeley, said that Trump's rhetoric linking Latinos to crime and lawlessness is very intentional. He says it's a way to promote a racial threat and deny that's what he's doing. And he has a book that's coming out, Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. And that focuses on how to combat this type of politics. He says that Trump's use of the term invaders when talking about groups of mainly Central American migrants crossing the southern U.S. border and seeking asylum strongly communicates a message that people are under threat from an invading army of racial invaders who are barbaric and inherently criminal. 
And that's the core theme that Trump sort of puts out there first. And that, I don't know, pisses me off, for lack of a more eloquent word, right? Someone who can make implications like that, nasty, evil, inhumane implications about being not just unkind, condoning violence by silence and stops just short of the line so he can't be implicated. Right. It's denial. Like he kind of denial refers to someone who fails to recognize the significance or consequences of certain behavior. It also implies that something believed is untrue. So he's trying by putting these out there and then saying, no, 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 I didn't do it. He's playing a game with all of our psyches and he can leave a group of people riled up. And then all the people who listened to him and were like, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sorry. I'm winking at you right now. Like you can't say, but like the secret club, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, you and I got the message. And yet it's like a secret hate group now. You know, it's not the KKK. I mean, who knows that might happen again too, or as we've talked about in many episodes, but there's this undercurrent of secrecy and you are either incensed or on side with it, but none of it can be pinned to him because he leaves it just out there and is dangerously using his power of influence. Yeah. And here's the thing, like our demographics are changing as a nation. So as many Latinos feel the brunt of increasing racial tensions, we that path is we're moving along it. So there is a public religion research institute survey that found that 64% of Americans said that the United States becoming a majority non-white nation by 2045, what is projected to be, would be mostly positive. That view, however, differs among party lines. While 80% of Democrats say the growth is positive, 61% of Republicans say that's a negative development. So hold on, pause, digest that number. 80% of Democrats say that being a majority non-white nation by 2045 would be positive. Yeah. 39% of Republicans think it's positive. Yeah. That's a huge, I did the math, right? Like, that's a totally different opinion based on party lines, which, I mean, I have thoughts about party lines. Party lines frustrate me if you always consistently, mindlessly vote along with whatever party you're affiliated with. But that's pretty divisive. And Carrillo, who we mentioned before, he said that, I feel like the narrative on immigration has gotten to a point where some people refuse to see the humanity of immigrants. You know, you and I talk about it, Misasha, like, where is our humanity? Where is our consideration and compassion for like people? At the end of the day, it's people. And he said that can lead to the dangerous consequences where we've seen now. So do you think we're there yet? I mean, really, have we always been heading to where we are and this I don't want to call it a race war, but kind of. Are we there? Have we always been going there? Because we haven't talked about slavery. We haven't really processed how our nation was founded, all the biases that we are raised inherently to see, you know, or is it going to get worse? I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. No. Well, and I think, you know, right now we're going to get real with some history that I honestly did not really know, which plays into this. So Adam Sir. As an aside, I love Adam, and I'm just going to call him Adam because we totally, I mean, Sarah, you are obviously my best friend ever, but Adam is also my BFF now, and we hang out in my head, and we, you know, shoot the shit, and we drink beer, whatever. Adam, we're buds. But anyway, he wrote an amazing piece for The Atlantic, which is called White Nationalism's Deep American Roots. It's basically about the book that Hitler used to further his final solution, not the book that Hitler wrote, but the book that he based sort of the whole final solution on, which was the extermination of Jews and really not just Jews, but anyone who didn't fit the Aryan like blonde hair, blue eyed genetic superiority thing that he thought was so great. And the piece is not only about that book, but about the guy who wrote it. 
and what I thought was, well, we'll get into like all the things that I love about this piece. <laughs> so I'll just fangirl out on Adam. But the article begins with the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh last year. And I'm just going to directly quote the article at this point. Robert Bowers wanted everyone to know why he did it. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. He posted on the social media network Gab and from Gab Again, if you haven't listened to part two or part one of our three-part series, go back and do that. But Gab is a right-wing, extremely alt-right website, which we mentioned briefly in part two. And he posted this shortly before allegedly entering the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh on October 27th and gunning down 11 worshipers. He, quote, wanted all Jews to die, he declared, while he was being treated for his wounds. Invoking the specter of white Americans facing genocide, he singled out, H-I-A-S, which is a Jewish American refugee support group, and accused it of bringing in, quote, invaders that kill our people. So again, back to the immigrants. Then Attorney General Jeff Sessions announcing that Bowers would face federal charges was unequivocal in his condemnation. These alleged crimes are incomprehensibly evil and utterly repugnant to the values of this nation. And as I was reading this, this is literally the only time in recent history that I can remember thinking like, you go, Jeff Sessions. That was a great way to put that because I pretty much disagree with everything this man has ever done. But Jeff's my dude when it comes to shutting down hate in 2018, apparently, at least in this one moment. Going back to the article, the pogrom in Pittsburgh, which occurred just days before the 80th anniversary of Kristallnacht, which was a little bit of World War II history, the night of broken glass, which is where Nazis went and basically destroyed Jewish businesses like smashed windows, broke everything. That was really the start to the entirety of World War II. But so this what happened in Pittsburgh seemed fundamentally un-American to many. What Sessions said spoke to the reality that most Jews have found a welcome home in the United States. His message also echoed what has become an insistent refrain in this Donald Trump era. Americans want to believe that the surge in white supremacist violence and recruitment, the march in Charlottesville, Virginia, where neo-Nazis chanted Jews will not replace us, the hate crimes whose perpetrators invoke the president's name as a battle cry, has no roots in U.S. soil. This is racist, zealous with a foreign pedigree and marginal allure. But as Adam points out in this article, that's patently untrue. And to believe that is to fundamentally misunderstand a lot of what has happened in this country up until this point. We've covered some of the more horrific and terrible hate crimes, as well as the U.S.'s perhaps most infamous hate group, the KKK. But what we haven't really talked about is where that seed of hatred came from. And spoiler alert, it's not the poor white guys. It's the rich white dudes. So what Adam goes back to and continues, what is judged extremist today was once the consensus of a powerful cadre of, of the American elite, well-connected men who eagerly seized on a false doctrine of, quote, race suicide during the immigration scare of the early 20th century. They included wealthy patricians, intellectuals, lawmakers, even several presidents. We'll get to those dudes in a second. Perhaps the most important among them was a blue blood with a very impressive mustache, Madison Grant. He was the author of a 1916 book called The Passing of the Great Race, which spread the doctrine of racial race purity all over the globe. Grant's purportedly scientific argument that the exalted Nordic race, so blonde hair, blue eyed, that had founded America was in peril and all of modern society's accomplishments along with it helped catalyze nativist legislators in Congress to pass comprehensive restrictions on immigration policies in the early 1920s. His book went on to become Adolf Hitler's, quote, Bible, as Hitler wrote to tell him. And Grant's doctrine, as since, has been rejuvenated and rebranded by his ideological descendants as, quote, white genocide. So, like, in Grant's day, no one knew the term genocide because that really 
took off after, you know, World War II and you kill six million people. In an introduction to the 2013 edition of another of Grant's works, the white nationalist Richard Spencer. So this is in 2013. We're still talking about Grant. And Richard Spencer warns that, quote, one possible outcome of the ongoing demographic transformation is a thoroughly miscegenated and thus homogenous and assimilated nation, which would have little resemblance to the white America that came before it. So basically, he's saying there's so much race mixing that where did all the white people go? And this language is vintage Grant. So why don't we know who Grant is? Because, Sarah, did you know who Madison Grant was? No, I had no idea. Right? So me neither. And the answer, as Adam points out, is back to Hitler himself. Like, we hate the Nazis. We hate Hitler. We fought against Nazis. Nazis loved this book and were racist. So through, you know, if you do the mental calculus here, if we don't talk about this book, we are all then anti-racist. Or are we? Interesting. I mean, just so that's basically saying, let's just sweep it under the rug and therefore we're good. Right. And basically, like if so, if Hitler liked this book and we say we don't like this book, then clearly because we're anti-Hitler, we're anti this book. And because Hitler was obviously the height of racism, if we're anti-Hitler, then we're just obviously anti-racist. Right. Or we're not racist. I like how ignorance and silence equals anti-racist versus talking about it and condemning it publicly. That to me is the crux of what that we just discovered, right? Yeah. So a little bit more about Madison Grant. So he came, as we discussed, from old money. He was born in Manhattan seven months after Robert E. Lee surrendered to Grant to end the Civil War. So he was a Civil War baby, basically. He attended Yale and then Columbia Law School and You got to love it when your alma mater, YACLS, turns out the dude who wrote the Bible, according to Hitler, like that just, you know. Anyway, back to Grant. He was an outdoorsman and a conservationist, knowledgeable about wildlife and interested in the dangers of extinction. Expertise that he soon became intent on applying to humanity. When he opened a law practice on Wall Street in the early 1890s, the wave of immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe was nearing its height. So remember, this is like the Ellis Island time period in the United States. As he was jostled by Greek rag pickers, Armenian boot blacks, and Jewish cart vendors, it was distressingly obvious to him that the new arrivals did not know this nation's history or understand its Republican form of government, his biographer notes. Interesting. And so of all of those types of people, immigrants, Jews troubled Grant the most. He later wrote, the man of the old stock is being driven off the streets of New York City by the swarms of Polish Jews. But as the title of his 1916 book indicated, Grant's fear of dispossession ran wide and deep. These immigrants, I mean, this is going to quote directly from the piece, but these immigrants adopt the language of the Native American. They wear his clothes, they steal his name, and they are beginning to take his women. But they seldom adopt his religion or understand his ideals while he is being elbowed out of his own home. The American looks calmly abroad and urges on others the suicidal ethics which are exterminating his own race. So it's kind of like the rhetoric around the 2019 mass shootings. That, right? It's They're going to take what is owed to us. It's entitlement at its finest right there. And on a side note, the, when he says the man of the old stock, like, A, who are those dudes? And B, they sound terrible. Like, I don't know what is happening there. Okay, anyway, sorry. But what he was saying was nothing new. Europeans had talked about this in the 1800s. Europe was all about putting white people in positions of power throughout the world for centuries. Colonialism, right? But Grant was different in that he was white, he was well-educated, he was American, and he was talking at a time that was new to white Americans. And let's be honest, what he lacked in science, he made up for in fear. Asterisk. Anybody sound familiar? 
but go ahead. <laughs> no, he blended like this sort of blonde hair, blue eyed Nordic ideal with fear mongering and supplied a scholarly veneer for notions many white citizens already wanted to believe. And here's the thing. He was basically peddling what people already just thought was the right thing or, you know, they were just looking for someone to tell them like, yeah, that totally makes sense. Racist dudes. Americans' gauzy idealism blinded them, he argued, to the reality that newcomers from the Mediterranean and Eastern Europe, to say nothing of anyone from Asia or Africa, because that's even further out, could never hope to possess the genetic potential innate to the nation's original Nordic inhabitants, which P.S. what? Right. Like we wasn't, but okay. So obviously Grant missed some science whatever classes along the way. Also the original inhabitants after we kicked out the Native Americans and massacred them. Right. Maybe that was all fake news, according to Grant. But anyway, so those dudes, the Nordic inhabitants, those original guys, were the source of the nation's greatness, according to Grant. And he gleefully challenged those financial ideas. He basically was like, America is too altruistic. Like we were, you know, letting in, you're tired, you're poor. And if the melting pot is allowed to boil without control and we continue to follow our national motto and continue to let in all these people, like we don't, what happens to the people who came on the Mayflower? Those colonial dudes are gone. And I think that was effective because he scared white people, basically, because they were like, Grant, you know, you're making sense. And I think we've seen how fear works as a core value, you know, especially in a presidential campaign, for example. We've seen that very recently. But clearly it also worked for Hitler, who loved this shit. But even scarier, like so did our past presidents. Right. This is not a Southern problem or a whatever problem that we're looking at right now. Like if you think white supremacy is just a little thing corralled, no, it is big, white, rich, too, and the foundational. So basically, if you talk about Grant, his thesis, all this stuff, found pretty eager converts among the American elite, thanks in no small part to his extensive social connections. You know, the New York Times, The Nation, a lot of media outlets echoed his reasoning. Teddy Roosevelt, who was by then out of office, told Grant in 1916 that his book showed, quote, fine fearlessness in assailing the popular and mischievous sentimentalities and attractive and corroding falsehoods, which few men dare assail. Seriously, that was not his Rough Rider moment or whatever that is. In 1921, President Warren Harding gave a speech in Alabama, and he publicly praised one of Grant's disciples, Lothrop Stoddard. And he had written a book called The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. But he also offered similar warnings about the destruction of white society by invading dusky hordes. And he said there's a fundamental, eternal, and inescapable difference between the races. Racial amalgamation there cannot be. It's this huge one or the other, like if you just think about worldview from a psychological standpoint, it's like you have this spectrum and it's a seesaw. And if one goes up, the other must go down. There's no holistic betterment of humanity, this realm, we can all thrive. Our foundational philosophy here, which is we rise by lifting others. It's a different worldview. And it's easy to like slip into that if you're not mindful of how people are pitching their arguments. But going back to sort of rich white dudes supporting this, Harding's vice president and successor, Calvin Coolidge, also found Grant's thesis compelling. He said, there are racial considerations too grave to be brushed aside for any sentimental reasons. Biological law tells us that certain divergent people will not mix or blend. You gotta love that. A real 
deep, you know, understanding of science there. That's And to be fair, they didn't, right? This was like, they didn't understand. Nobody understood how pregnancy worked. I think until the 1920s, they thought a woman had to want to get pregnant in order to get pregnant. Like, it's true. There was no real understanding of it. But the problem is, if you don't talk about it, challenge it and dispel it, Right. Here we are a century later having the same freaking conversation with same people in power, types of people in power. But so I think that's where it's scary. Grant's work was used and believed by Congress to enact some pretty exclusionary anti-immigration acts. And when that happened in the mid-1920s, Grant basically stopped pretending that this was about anything else but keeping America for white people. And who loved that? Neighbor across the pond, Hitler. Mm. Stand-up guy, that Hitler. Adolf Hitler told the New York Times half a decade later, quote, it was America that taught us a nation should not open its doors equally to all nations. And that was in 1933, one year before he became chancellor. He also admiringly noted that the U.S. simply excludes the immigration of certain races. In these respects, America already pays obedience, at least in tentative first steps, to the characteristic I don't know how to say this, Volkish conception of the state. Basically, his followers were eager to claim that a foreign, quote, like actually American lineage was the pathway that was paved for the Nazi mission to continue. I mean, I never knew, I never thought about this. I never knew about this. I had no idea that America was the inspiration for Hitler's massacre. Yeah, that's way to go, America. Yeah, and, you know, kudos to the PR machine that worked in the Third Reich, because, you know, you get America on board, and, like, you've got a whole lot of justification there. Well, and this is really, really off topic, and so cut me off if you think it's totally taking it. But, you know, you mentioned a little earlier in our conversation that, you know, the Jewish population has basically been adopted as part of the American, like they're not seen as another now, right? Yeah. And we talk about how we don't, you know, mention this ugly period of history and that sort of stuff. Is that effectively like reparations, right? Like we jacked up so bad by inspiring this totally horrific massacre of the majority of like a huge number of your people. Sorry, we'll make you even now. Like, I wonder... Because we've never done that with slavery. We've never openly done any of that stuff. But I don't know. I just saw that that might be a, it was certainly never, to my knowledge, talked about as a conscious thing. But I don't know. I mean, I my opinion on that is like Germany has come a long way in like reparations for, you know, what happened because there are no monuments to Nazis. Right. Like you don't go to Auschwitz and be like, oh, God, I wonder what that camp commander felt. And like, did he have a tough time here? No one says that. Right. But I think for us, especially skin color matters more in a lot of ways. So in like a civil rights movement, right, or you're looking at skin color, because that is an obvious difference. And if you're like of Jewish descent from Europe, you may look white, right? And then, you know, especially because that was the whole thing about Hitler, like picking out the blonde haired, blue eyed people, some of those people were Jewish. But I think for us, it's not necessarily conscious reparations. I think it's, we hate Hitler, We fought against him, but we love white people. So if you look white, you're in. I think I would like to believe it's more sophisticated, like along the lines of what you said. I don't think we're that. Probably not. Okay. So, you know, this going back to what Grant was saying and what everyone was like fully on board with, America has always sort of dealt with this. What? is the our principle of national unity because on one hand and like Ellis Island and all of the what we learned you know growing up in schools like the US is a champion of the poor and the dispossessed like it's a nation and we are stronger because of pluralism and that is when you have many different groups of people living together harmoniously 
But according to like the other camp, America's greatness is the result of its white and Christian origins, the erosion of which spells doom for like the national experiment. So as Adam notes, people of both political persuasions like to tell a too simple story about the course of this battle. World War II showed Americans the evil of racism, which was vanquished in the 1960s. The Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act brought non-whites into the American polity for good. The Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 forever banished the racial definition of American identity embodied in the 1924 Immigration Bill, which was forged again by those congressmen who, you know, were Grant fans who, you know, were on this crusade to save Nordic Americans from race suicide. And so the truth is that, like, you know, we have these dual principles still, like that has never really gone away. You know, where the Nazis sort of what they didn't understand about America was that they didn't understand how committed Americans were to democracy. So, you know, even though like racism in the United States had some similarities to, you know, and believed, you know, in similar ways that like there was sort of the white race is superior. They still didn't buy into Nazi Germany because white supremacists in the United States did not want to live under a fascist government. And that was predominantly what Nazi Germany was. You had a dictator in various countries. You know, you sort of had a Hitler like master dictator and then you had Mussolini. You had other dictators who were sort of under that. They weren't down with that. They wanted a land in which white people were free and full citizens, but like everyone else wasn't, basically. So the Nazis clearly didn't understand that crap, but it was true. And U.S. soldiers of all types and faiths fought to defend this very concept. And that was the part of America that because the Nazis did not understand that, that sort of was their downfall in the end. But we can't ignore, and now that we know, and now that we're talking about it, we can't ignore that we planted that seed, right, that led to the extermination of so many millions in Europe due to the Nazis, like Grant and other white dudes like him were very responsible for sort of promulgating that out into the world and giving people who, you know, thought that idea either quietly to themselves or, you know, with their friends or more openly, like a very open way to believe that. And in fact, what he preached is back in a new form. In the conflict between the Trump administration and its opponents, these rival American principles of exclusion and pluralism confront each other more starkly than they have since Grant's own time. And so the scarier part is that this ideology that has gained ground since Trump has become president may not really disappear when he does. Grant's philosophical framework has found new life among extremists at home and abroad. And echoes of his rhetoric can be heard from the Republican base and the conservative media figures the base trusts, as well as, once again, from the president and from the people who are close to him. So, you know, the resurrection of race suicide as white genocide can be traced to the white supremacist David Lane, who claimed that the term racial integration is only a euphemism for genocide and whose infamous 14 words manifesto published in the 1990s distills his credo. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children, which, I mean, as credos goes, sucks. But anyway, far right intellectuals in Europe now. And, you know, again, this isn't just the U.S., but it is directly related to what is happening right now. But far right intellectuals in Europe speak of the great replacement of Europeans by non-white immigrants and refugees. And so here we are back to immigration. We're back to the fear that America is not white enough, that we're being overrun by people who don't look like our founding fathers. But this time, there is something that we can do. America, from 
the philosophical perspective, but also from a psychological perspective of each of our individuals wins when we believe in pluralism, when we believe that we truly are created equal, we can coexist many different groups together and not only coexist, but thrive together. And you, me, you listeners, every single one of us out there can reinforce that every day through the actions we take by what we tell our kids, by what we read and what we say. It doesn't have to be complicated, but a simple step to take is to just think about what you say and how you say it. Like if you're really pissed off that somebody ran into your car, don't spew racist nonsense. Don't let your hate come out like that. But on a bigger scale, we're facing a major choice with regard to how America is going to be seen nationally and really internationally in 2020. This is your chance to show that, yes, we are better than our past. We are the America that defeated the Nazis, and we did it because we believe in a true democracy. We're going to be taking you through what we're calling our election boot camp. We're going to talk about some major issues and discuss this. We're going to talk about the things you need to think about because your vote counts. Register to vote. Talk to your friends and make sure they register to vote and keep listening. We've got a lot more uncomfortable conversations to have on this front. Hopefully, we'll turn this all around. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there. Welcome to the Dear White Women Podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we're talking... <sighs> How are we doing so far? You need a fucking piece of chocolate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what happened. Total parenting for so fucking, like, so fucking annoying. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. And if, if I can't do it this time, you're going to have to do it. So. <laughs> I haven't thought about what I'd say. Come on. All right. All right.